In a solitude of the sea, deep from human vanity and the pride of life that planned her, stilly couches she. Steel chambers lithe at the pyres of her salamandrian fires, cold currents thrid and turn to rhythmic tidal lyres. Over the mirrors meant to glass the opulent, the sea worm crawls, grotesque, slimed, dumb, indifferent. Jewels in joy designed to ravish the sensuous mind lie lightless, all their sparkles bleared and black and blind. Dim moon-eyed fishes near gaze at the gilded gear and query, what does this vaingloriousness down here? Welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind from HowStuffWorks.com. Hey, welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind. My name is Robert Lamb. And I'm Joe McCormick. And we began with the first five stanzas of Thomas Hardy's epic on the uh, sinking of the Titanic, the convergence of the twain. We didn't read the whole poem because I think the first half's better than the second half. I don't. Do you remember that one, Robert? Uh, no, I'm, I'm not as up on this one. But I, it now seems that we should have read this in one of the many voices of the actor Tom Hardy. That would have been, <laughs> that would have been lovely. Uh, yeah, that would have been good. Or do a Billy Zane impression from the movie Titanic. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, one of the interesting things about this poem always is that it was supposed to be like a memorial for the sinking of the Titanic, but there's just like not even a hint of of sadness or grieving for the lives lost. It's just like celebrating the irony of the ship sinking. Yeah, and it, and in this section that we read here, there's just a lot of uh, almost kind of ghoulish gloom. Uh-huh. Um, obsessing with just sort of the mysterious nature of the shipwreck. Yeah, so there's the irony of the opulence going down and then being surrounded by the worm and the the dim moon-eyed fishes that swim around at the bottom of the sea because that is a really captivating image, isn't Mm -hmm. it? Like taking this, like the ultimate emblem of human vanity and riches and, and mechanical design and opulence and all that and then putting it down at like the deepest hell there is on planet Earth, the bottom of the North Atlantic. It is kind of the ultimate irony, the ultimate middle finger from nature. But of course, shipwrecks are a thing that, you know, it's it's not like the Titanic was the first ship to ever sink. Uh, in fact, I, I think maybe we should start with the trivia question. We know the answers from the uh, for this because we discussed it ahead of time. But I want you, the listener out there, to think about this trivia question. How many total shipwrecks do you think there are on the bottoms of the world's oceans going back through all human history? You know there's at least one because we, we just referenced <laughs> the Titanic. And despite that one film, nobody has, has, has raised the Titanic. They make a movie where they brought it up? That happened? Yeah, yeah. There was a film like Raise the Titanic, I think it was called. It was one of these it, – it's not quite a disa- – it was it, it was on the heels of all the big disaster films, uh-huh. as I recall. Uh, and uh, I never saw it, but it had a really um, – it was a really weird concept, it seems, for a film. Okay, okay. So the question is, how many total shipwrecks in human history? To be fair, estimates vary. Nobody can know this number. You just have to have a rough guess. Uh, so guess maybe on the order of magnitude that you would be thinking. Like, uh, before I had read these answers or before I'd thought it through, I probably would have guessed maybe on the order of like, I don't know, 50,000 or so. Even that seems like a lot, like 50,000 ships. Ships are huge. Maybe it couldn't be that many. But 
let's look at some external answers according to a few experts. Uh, so according to the mass market adventure novelist and underwater explorer Clive Cussler, who uh, I always uh, always forget that he was also an underwater adventurer. Yeah, so you like you see his books in every airport bookstore. I think he mm-hmm. writes. I don't know. I've never read one, but I think they're like adventure novels about like oh a submarine sank and somebody has to go down and get the treasure out of it. Uh, I don't know if submarines carry treasure. I may be mixing genres there, but it's all underwater stuff. And so, but he's an actual underwater explorer as well. And in his uh, foreword to a book about shipwrecks by the archaeologist James Delgado, there are more than one million shipwrecks from history, uh, from the history of human civilization. And actually, there are estimates that are even higher. A figure often cited by the Intergovernmental Oceanographic Commission of UNESCO, uh, they've cited that the best estimate is about three million or even over 3 million. And of course, that's going to that's gonna entail everything from dinghies to uh, treasure barges. Yeah, but even then, that's it. that is such a high number. How could there be 3 million shipwrecks at the bottom of the ocean? It just seems impossible. But then I started, I started trying to do the Fermi estimation thing and mm-hmm. thinking through it that way. Okay, just work with some round numbers. Assume humans have been sailing the oceans at some significant scale for maybe 10,000 years. Obviously, we've been sailing a lot more in recent centuries. Right. Even if they're not uh, venturing out across vast bodies of water, they're at least hugging the shores. They're at least going out to fish. They're at least using, uh, you know, channels to move around. Exactly. Now, simply assume an average, and this is going to be a very rough average because it's going to vary a lot over the different years, but a a rough average of 100 shipwrecks per year over 10,000 years. Uh, Now, obviously, that wouldn't be even close to uh, evenly distributed, but that already gets you to a million. Just 100 shipwrecks a year for 10,000 years, you're at a million already. Now, think of all the times when shipwrecks surge, say, during war between big naval powers or during horrible storms, hurricanes, cyclones. Think of the literally thousands of ships that were sunk during World War II alone. And suddenly, a million shipwrecks does not only seem not impossible, it seems quite, you know, like that seems maybe kind of low. Right. Yeah. I mean, you're left more with just a consideration of how many shipwrecks are, remain even a, remotely identifiable as a shipwreck. And the vast, vast majority of shipwrecks out there are completely unexplored. We might know where some of them are, like they've been mapped in some way, but nobody's ever been to them. And that's a tantalizing idea. Yeah. We all love the idea of uh, – of, of an unexplored shipwreck, especially considering that it, what, might, there might be treasure down there. There might be some sort of a, a monster down there. I mean, it's the stuff of, of so many wonderful, um, uh, you know, speculative bits of fiction or, yeah. or even, um, you know, more believable fare like uh, like The Deep. Uh, I believe what the, the plot in that, isn't it, that there's a uh, like a World War II era um, a vessel with a bunch of morphine on it that oh, has yeah? uh, sunk and it's like sunk on top of uh, of a treasure vessel from uh, you know the colonial days, like a Spanish treasure. Is this uh, the one with Nick Nolte and Robert yes. Shaw? Yes, I believe so. Despite my love of Robert Shaw, I've never seen this one. Yeah, it was well, it was one of the big ones, right? I got to get on that. That's like seventies cinema, right? Yeah, yeah, classic seventies okay. cinema. Okay, yeah, that may view it this weekend. 
But you know, I think one of the I think one of the stupidest things about people uh, exploring underwater shipwrecks in movie underwater shipwrecks uh, the ones that happen under the water uh, shipwrecks in movies is that they're always looking for treasure when in fact the real treasures are not silver and gold and they're not even morphine the real treasures of shipwrecks are the bizarre interesting adaptations of ocean life to our sunken seaborne cities exactly now the the previous episode of stuff to blow your mind was all about the things that live uh, and thrive in, on, and uh, and certainly on board, even in the riggings of functional uh, sea vessels. And now we're dealing with uh, sea vessels that have sunk into the bottom of the ocean. So what happens immediately after that depends on several factors. So the ship goes down, and what happens depends on the size of the ship, where it falls, the intensity of the impact when it hits the bottom. And this is probably maybe something you don't often think of. Like when you live down in the ocean, there are boats and cargo ships and 50,000-ton battleships floating above you all the time. And if something goes wrong, they can fill with water and they lose their buoyancy and they come crashing down on your head. The only equivalent I can imagine is if, like, ship-sized objects were falling down on us from space or from the sky at a rate of dozens or hundreds of times per year. And then we're just lost, uh, in, in, the, in most cases, just lost to whatever was losing those ships. They're like, oh, what's well, down there somewhere? We, maybe we can, we can find some of them. Uh, we can retrieve things from some of these wrecks, but uh, that's about it. Oh, yeah. What if, like, what if, like, 200 airplanes every year were, like, the size of a battleship, they crashed somewhere on Earth, and nobody ever went in to clean it up? It just stayed wherever it fell. Yeah. And certainly that's the case when, when an airplane crashes into the ocean in many cases. I mean, they're, they're, we, flights have been lost. Uh, just as ships have been lost uh, throughout human history. Yeah, so you've got this introduction of this this new thing into the underwater ecosystem. So we were wondering what happens to the life below when a ship comes down. Uh, I found one discussion of this in a book called The Biology of Disturbed Habitats by Lawrence R. Walker from Oxford University Press 2012. And so in this book, he's generally looking at ways that humans disrupt natural ecosystems and habitats. And one of the many things he looks at is a shipwreck. Uh, so he says, number one, of course, more damage is caused by shipwrecks in shallow water where biodiversity is already high. You can imagine this, like if there's a coral reef or something, mm-hmm. shipwreck comes down on that. It's a, it's initially going to crush a bunch of life and screw things up. Right. And then we'll get to at least one example of this uh, later on in the episode. Uh, it's when the the, the ship falls into essentially a wasteland. I guess that's where there's considerably less harm and potentially room for things to flourish. Yeah. Well, there's room for things to flourish in both cases, but there are also negative trade-offs as well. Right. Well, like like if it damages, if it it heavily damages a coral reef and (laughs) introduces uh, uh, room for some uh, organisms to thrive, it's like, you know, did we really end up uh, ahead here? We we damaged a vital uh, part of the ecosystem. Well, even in in all the cases we'll talk about, it's, there's uh, some difficulty calculating the net benefits mm-hmm. and, and uh, detriments caused by a sunken ship. But the, we'll get into that in a minute. So obviously, as you hinted to, yeah, where it's out there in the deep, where the bottom might be a wasteland, where there's just sort of not much going on on the bottom of the ocean, which is true for much of the ocean. Like a lot of the ocean has sandy or muddy bottom mm-hmm. without a ton of biodiversity or, or closely you know, densely compacted life. And so when a, when a ship sinks out in deep water where biodiversity is lower, the initial impact tends to be less. 
But as we've been alluding to, shipwrecks are known to have both positive and negative long-term consequences for underwater biodiversity. So negative consequences can, of course, uh, come in the form of like the initial impact crushing stuff and screwing up a reef or anything like that. But they can also come in the form of, say, a ship disintegrating over time and leaking toxic substances over time into the water. One example might be fuel or other chemicals that are in the, the structure of the ship itself or some they're serving some kind of chemical purpose, say, within the engine. Yeah, because, uh, you know, in many of these cases, we're dealing with a, 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 a func- fully functional vessel that mm. has that has sunk due to, say, uh, an attack by a, a military vessel or, uh, you know, storm situation, et cetera. Or uh, sabotage. Yeah, or sabotage. It's going to have fuel aboard. Mm-hmm. And there are, even, there are even very notable cases where a vessel is intentionally sunk uh, for testing purposes but still with tons of fuel on board. Ugh. One example I came across of this was uh, the plight of the German heavy cruiser uh, Prinz Eugen, uh, captured by the United States in World War II, and then, co- and then cobbled into part of this ghost fleet that the uh, military put uh, together, along with uh, the aircraft carrier Saratoga, the battleship New York, more than 80 warships in total. And they put this motley crew together so and then anchored them at uh, Bikini Atoll in the Marshall Islands in order to hit the fleet with two uh, nuclear attacks. Oh, no. To see what happens when you hit a fleet with an atomic weapon. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> they thought like the ships might be okay in the atomic blast. Well, I mean, I guess they didn't know a lot. Yeah, yeah. Uh, but but here, this is a, a summary of the results uh, from a popular mechanics article by Kyle Mizukami. Quote: Prince Yugen survived the blasts, but she became frightfully radioactive. After initial attempts to decontaminate the ship, the U.S. towed the heavy cruiser to Kawajalian Atoll, where she sank six months later. So. The, the ship survived these uh, these atomic detonations. Whoa. Today, the ship is visible just off the coast of Inubuj Island, upside down in shallow water, her propellers resting above the surface of the Pacific Ocean. Now, by the 1970s, though, there was significant concern from the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service that oil might leak from this wreck, mm-hmm. uh, oil that fortunately was not radioactive. That was one of their concerns. They checked on that to make sure that, that we weren't dealing with the potential of not only leaked oil but leaked radioactive oil. Uh, but still, the, the U.S. Army, Navy, and the Republic of Micronesia, they all embarked on a salvage mission to retrieve its uh, something like – uh, 2,767 tons of oil. Which like, were still in there. Still in there. That's how tanked up this vessel was. And this project um, was actually completed just last year with some 250,000 gallons of oil removed, about 97% of its holdings. And the remaining oil is said to be safely enclosed in a few uh, internal tanks. Mm-hmm. I mean, at least for the foreseeable future. Yeah. But, but that's one of the things about all of these, these ships. Ships uh, are artificial creations of uh, human technology and they, are, they have a fair amount of difficulty just thriving on the surface of the water. We've talked about the accumulation of barnacles, yeah. for example. So you sink it down to the bottom, uh, things are just going to get uh, 
uh, rustier and rustier over time. They don't stay contained forever, but right. maybe some things can stay contained for a long time. Yeah, at least they got 250,000 gallons of oil removed <laughs> from this thing. Uh, speaking of the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service, uh, I also uh, was reading an article uh, that mentioned in 2014, they completed a $5.5 million conservation project to remove three wrecked ships weighing a total of 1 million pounds from the Pacific Remote Islands National Wildlife Refuge. Uh, these wrecks had all occurred in the, the previous 15-year period, mm-hmm. and they had damaged the reef. Oh, yeah. So there's just an example of, of uh, an, another case where we have shipwrecks, but they're in the exactly the wrong spot, and then they have to be removed. Right. So now we've discussed some of the obvious ways that a shipwreck can be very negative, uh, uh, can have very negative consequences, and especially in a place like a reef where mm-hmm. there's already high biodiversity. There's right. already a lot of stuff living there. Um, but Walker says that especially when uh, you're looking at like the deeper ocean, he says, quote, shipwrecks have important ecological consequences that in some ways resemble those of carcasses. Oh, like a, a whale fall. Yeah. And so I was like, wow, I wish he would say more about that. He doesn't in this section, but I looked up his section on marine carcasses, and this was very interesting. I I see what he's talking about here. So the effects of marine carcasses falling down to the bottom of the ocean. Uh, Walker summarizes some research in that, uh, number one, he says that, so there's one study from 1989 that estimates there might be one gray whale carcass for every 300 square kilometers of ocean floor. So what happens when a whale falls to the ocean floor? Number one, of course, it depends on where it falls. But even in the benthic zone out there in the deep sea, when a whale carcass sinks, some opportunistic scavengers that specialize in unpredictable food sources, such as grenadier fish and some benthic thick invertebrates will arrive and start eating a sunken whale carcass literally within minutes. Mm -hmm. Uh, In the example of one experimentally sunk whale carcass, crabs, sharks, and other fish had eaten the whale's flesh within a few months. And this was followed by a colonization of polychaete worms, which we'll get uh, back to that in a bit. But uh, so after that, sulfur-based chemosynthetic organisms show up, and these communities can exist within the ecosystem of the carcass for more than five or six years. And this suggests that fauna that normally live on deep ocean hydrothermal vents can also make a habitat out of a whale carcass, and we'll see as we go on, also out of a sunken ship. Yeah, it's, I mean, a whale's carcass, especially when you're dealing with the, the largest whales, mm-hmm. uh, this is a, a substantial uh, amount of, uh, of, of biomass to just yeah. have sink to the bottom. Like, and unlike with a number of other uh, living creatures in the seas, it can sink to the bottom. Other things are going to have more potential to be consumed and torn apart uh, in the upper layers till, till there's, only, there's nothing left but like a, a faint rain of gray particles at the bottom. Mm-hmm. But here we can see the, the, the vast majority of the carcass uh, can sink to the bottom and then become a community. And if you're interested in this, I think, Robert, you and Christian had an episode about this from a few years ago, right, about whale fall and like the Osadax bone worm. Yeah, I believe that was one of the episodes we did with uh, Dr. Mara Hart, uh, the author of Sex in the Sea. So if you haven't heard that one, there's more for you to go back and check out. Yeah, dealing with one of the the, the highly specialized organisms that's, that is all in on a whale uh, carcass. But I think it's fascinating how a whale carcass here can become not just a food source but a habitat yes. in itself. And in much the same way, a sunken ship out in the ocean can become a habitat. Walker doesn't elaborate more on the uh, relationship between his description of whale carcasses and sunken ships. But I said I would come back to this. So I looked into it and there is a parallel 
parallel about the colonization of whale carcasses by sulfur-based chemosynthetic bacteria. And we will discuss this after we get back from a break. All right, we're back. So we're on the subject of how a shipwreck can be kind of like a fallen whale carcass out in the ocean. And one of the ways that has been suggested is that there is a similar way that uh, different uh, organisms that often live around geothermal vents can colonize these fallen carcasses, whether it's a, an organic whale carcass or a mechanical monster carcass of, of a great, great ship. Um, so I found an NOAA report on the marine wildlife colonization of a group of three 19th century shipwrecks in the Gulf of Mexico known as the Monterey shipwrecks. And the authors of this report discuss these findings uh, in a paragraph about tube worms. So here's the rundown. The ship remains show signs of vestimentiferin tube worms that get chemical nutrition from sulfides, which are produced by chemosynthetic bacteria. Now, these tube worms you will usually find growing near hydrothermal vents at the bottom of the ocean, eating the byproducts of microorganisms. And th this in itself is a wonderful and surprising discovery about nature, the life that surrounds deep-sea hydrothermal vents. Uh, up here on the surface in the sunshine, you know, we're used to – living in food webs that are mostly traceable back to autotrophs that get their energy from the sunlight, right? So a crocodile eats a dingo, which ate a rabbit, which ate grass, and the plant matter in the grass was chemically synthesized sugar using the energy of the sun. It all comes from the sun. And it kind of results in a, uh, I guess you could say, a, what, a heliocentric uh, um, idea um, for us humans where we just think of, of, of all life as being more directly linked to the energy of the sun. Yeah, there's quite a good reason for surface religions to have sun gods. Mm -hmm. You know, Helios is the true provider. But there is another uh, god in the deep. Right. There is a Hadean god down there. Well, let's say that the Hadean one is a goddess, okay? She creates these awesome parallel trophic webs that don't have so much to do with sunlight. In some cases, not at all. In some cases, at least not as much as the surface food webs. So at the bottom of the ocean, there's total darkness without access to sunlight. But one way stuff at the bottom of the ocean in the darkness can survive is to eat something from the photosynthesis food web that falls down from above, right? You got stuff making food out of sunlight up there. It comes down and you eat it. But another way is to skip the sunlight-based nutrition, get your energy from the heat and chemical-rich waters around deep-sea hydrothermal vents. So deep down at the bottom of the ocean, you've got these places where you've got heated minerals gushing up out of the, uh, out of the earth into the water. And around these vents, microorganisms form mats, which take in chemicals and minerals, for example, uh, hydrogen sulfide escaping from the earth, and they oxidize it into sulfur. And this chemical reaction produces energy that can be used to create nutrition for the microbes. And thus, another type of food web is born. So other organisms might graze on the microbial mats and eat them or eat their byproducts. And then you've got a second round of eaters that feed on the first round and so forth. And hydrothermal vents are just amazing. You've also got these giant tube worms that actually live in a mutualistic relationship with the chemosynthetic vent microbes. The, the microbes provide the worms with nutrition and the worms provide the microbes with shelter. Uh, but so where did chemosynthetic bacteria come from in the Monterey shipwrecks? Well, the authors of the NOAA report uh, suggest a process. 
They say, you know, probably first wood boring organisms come in and consume the wooden parts of the ship. And then this converts stored chemical energy in the wood into bioavailable nutrients. And then they write, quote, as organisms devour these nutrients, increased respiration causes the development of anoxic conditions without oxygen and sulfide production by sulfate-reducing bacteria. As a result, the shipwrecks are producing conditions similar to those of other deep-sea chemosynthetic habitats such as methane seeps and hydrothermal vents. So the shipwrecks here are like a new temple to the Hadean goddess of the hydrothermal vents. They provide a, a sort of analog of the conditions of hydrothermal vents that can allow similar organisms to thrive without anything escaping from the earth. Yeah, this is interesting about uh, considering the wood here because, of course, for the, the vast majority of, uh, of, of human history, ships were wooden. Like we were discussing the, the, the wooden ships uh, and, and their, their issues with barnacles in the, the, the last episode. Uh, so, and, of course, even ships with steel hulls are going to have a number of wooden components on them. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and I guess in a way this would be – a version of the other kind of survival down in the deep, where, which is surviving based on stuff from the photosynthesis web up above falling down. But this would be like converting that into – at later stages into a parallel of the chemosynthetic food web. You end up with the same tube worms, the same chemosynthetic bacteria, the same sulfur-based food web, and the creatures of the deep sea Hades take root. And of course, in all of this, uh, you know, we were kind of uh, glossing over the obvious that when a when a ship first sinks into the ocean, it may or may not contain, uh, uh, say, human beings or oh, right. or other or other uh, you know could certainly can contain other organisms as well, uh, chickens, goats, uh, the, the the gorilla and orangutan that we discussed in the in the most recent episode. <laughs> oh no! <laughs> so there could be other forms of immediate. Uh, sustenance aboard a ship as well. A, sh a ship is like a box of chocolates that has various, you know, uh, surprising morsels throughout, and you you don't know what they're going to be until they land on the bottom and you explore. Yeah, it could be full of primates. It could be full of uh, plant life. It could be full of uh, radioactive oil. <laughs> you simply don't know. What's the box of chocolates equivalent of radioactive oil? Oh, um. Depends on the box of chocolates. Uh, some of them, they're all radioactive oil. I'd say the ones that have the really fake uh, cherry goo in the middle. Oh, yeah. yeah. Yeah, because those can be those can be good if you have a really nice uh, maraschino cherry inside of a chocolate. Mm -hmm. But very often uh, you get the uh, the radioactive sludge version of that. I'm more into the Luxardo cherries myself. Oh, Yes. Okay, no, no, no. Back to the tube worms from Ocean Hell. So uh, the Monterey wrecks are not the only ones where vent life has been discovered like this. Uh, for example, I found this one paper by uh, Maria Cristina Gambi, Anya Schultz, and Enzio Amato called Record of Lamellibrachia, and then it lists several uh, – uh, taxon names here, uh, from a deep shipwreck in the Western Mediterranean Sea, Italy, in Marine Biodiversity Records 2011. And the authors report finding tube worms, Lamellibrachia, at a shipwreck site of a ship uh, called the uh, Catania, which was sunk in 1917 on the bottom of a western basin of the Mediterranean Sea. And the authors write, quote, it needs still to be clarified which type of energy source the obligate symbiotic bacteria of these worms may use for nutrition, since no sulfur emissions can be documented on and around the shipwreck. 
The Catania contained some wooden structures and was transporting cotton balls and mm. oil seeds. So uh, here's some more little chocolate morsels. Yeah. Cotton balls and oil seeds. So the symbiotic bacteria may rely on degradation of these materials. This record stresses the importance of shipwreck as a possible stepping stone habitat for the large-scale dispersion of vestimentifera, meaning like vent life. Hmm. So that's really interesting. They're saying it's possible shipwrecks could serve as a stepping stone habitat to sort of walk communities of vent life from one scarce deep sea vent to another across the bottom of the ocean. Well, this is interesting. I wonder if if this means that uh, the accidental sinkings of, of ships in human history have enabled populations from one vent to reach other vents that they that that would otherwise journeys that would have otherwise been impossible. Yeah, I'm I'm trying to think of an analogy for the surface. It's like go back to the idea that there are these giant ship sized airplanes flying around all the time and they crash pretty often. Mm-hmm. What if they crash and create like they're full of water and create an oasis in the middle of a desert that occasionally crashes allow plant life to like cross a desert barrier. Right. Or I think uh, you could also maybe uh, draw some analogies to uh, land bridges uh, yeah. enabling uh, our, our ancestors to cross uh, from one uh, piece of land to another. Yeah. So I think at this stage, this is just a hypothesis of the authors. We don't know for sure if this is the case. But that, yeah, what a fascinating idea if that's true. Uh, like the, the fact that whenever a ship sinks, you could be enabling the spread of wildlife through the deep, dark desert. I mean, it's kind of like, it's again, it kind of comes back to the idea of like the butterfly effect, right? This yeah. is one small change. Uh, could uh, unsettle an ecosystem or allow uh, one uh, invasive organism to completely invade uh, this other habitat. Yeah. Now, I guess on the other hand, we could at least say that it looks like whale carcasses might do a similar thing. Yes. So it wouldn't just be ships, but we'd be contributing every time we uh, every time the captain goes down with the <laughs> ship. But back to Walker, he says, of course, on top of the his comparison to the carcasses, shipwrecks can just generally have a very positive impact on benthic biodiversity because a shipwreck, like a sunken ship, creates habitats for colonization by all kinds of organisms, barnacles, sponges, bryozoans, and the fish that feed on those organisms. So in many ways, I think we really can think of a sinking ship as kind of like a giant inorganic whale carcass, uh, I guess with a major difference being that ships are not covered in edible flesh, though they might have a wooden hull that might be edible to some organisms. They might be full of morsels of, mm-hmm. you know, organisms and food and stuff like that that partially fill this role. On the other hand, they might be full of poisons and toxins that leach out into the water and damage sea life. So you got these positive and negative effects coming along whenever a ship goes down. Yeah, it could just be filled with gold coins. And, you know, what are you going to do with that? I mean, depends on if you're a tube worm that doesn't care or a greedy octopus <laughs> that must have all the gold. <laughs> yeah, you show up, you think you might get something to eat or some wood to munch on, and ah, it's just the amber room. What am I going to do with this? <laughs> Okay, so we've been talking about what happens to a shipwreck sort of in the short term when it goes down. But I was wondering what happens to a shipwreck over a long period of time after it goes down. So uh, I want to look at a passage from another book. This is by Martin R. Spate and Peter A. Henderson, Marine Ecology Concepts and Applications uh, from 2013. And Spate and Henderson say essentially that sunken ships can function as artificial reefs. This shouldn't be much of a surprise. In fact, ships are often sunk on purpose to create artificial reefs. Now, the wisdom of doing this might be 
somewhat questionable. Right. I feel like this is one of those areas where it's easy to fall into the trap of thinking, well, anytime you scuttle a vessel and send it to the bottom of the sea, you're, you know, you're, you're doing a favor to marine communities down there. Right. Uh, but of course, as we already discussed, uh, that's not the case if your vessel is full of oil mm-hmm. or you just dropped it on top of a, a, on a delicate reef environment. Exactly right. So the, there, there are positives and negatives that come along with this. But literally, mechanically, what do scuttled obsolete warships and stuff like that do once they go down to the bottom. So first of all, the authors say they provide, quote, new, clean, hard substrates for the settlement of many sessile and sedentary species. Like suddenly there's a lot of just new virgin territory that you could affix yourself to. Exactly right. So sessile and sedentary species like coral generally make a base out of rocky surfaces, like loose seafloor sediment does not provide a good place for them to lock down. So if you've got a lot of you know, empty ocean floor that's just kind of mm-hmm. sandy out there. They're, these organisms can't really find purchase there. That's not the way they make a living. They need a rock or they need a ship's hull. Second, they provide shelter and a complex habitat for fish that like to hide within and around physical structures rather than out in open water. And there are a lot of species like this where, where you know, you can imagine when you go into a restaurant, would you, re- would you rather be sitting at a table in the middle of the room with your back to the door or in a kind of secluded booth in the far corner? Am I going to uh, fetch a handgun from the toilet and assassinate a mafia, Don? <laughs> I, I don't know. It, I guess it kind of depends on the restaurant. Oh, wait, Robert, I don't know if I was getting into bad territory. Are you like a table preference? Like you'd rather be in the middle of the room? Well, I mean, if, if the restaurant's good, there's a, hopefully you're not going to have a lot of choices. You're going to have to deal with it. You're going to have to deal with that table well, right next to the door uh, and get a blast of cold air every time somebody opens it. Oh, no, I'm not advising people to complain about their table. <laughs> don't do that. You look like such a jerk when you're like, I don't like this table. Uh, but no, I mean, everybody would, not every, most people, I think, would rather be secluded in the corner where you got your back to the wall. You got, you're kind of ensconced in a protective little booth area. Yeah, I guess there is a natural. Uh, tendency to want that kind of seating. However, uh, we've certainly heard, uh, you know, people uh, give like security advice where they they say, all right, first thing you do when you go into a restaurant, you just go ahead and inspect all the exits. Uh, (laughs) Right. Look for a handgun behind the toilet. uh, Make sure you have your escape. Like, I don't know. Like, like, yes, know how to get in and out of a building. But ultimately, like if I'm going into and enjoy, say, you know, some pizza or sushi, what have you. You want to be imagining what violence might ensue. Yeah, I want to just assume (laughs) that I'm going to get out of here in one piece and I'm not going to have to fight my way out with, you know, with chopsticks or something. But that's that's kind of a, a human privilege. Right. There is certainly uh, in an oceanic environment, uh, you need to be prepared to fight your way out. Right. Yeah. I would say generally uh, the life of an ocean-dwelling organism is much more dangerous than your average restaurant. But even given our understanding of that, it's, it's very natural to see – I mean, I, I don't want to compare fish and humans too much. But it's mm-hmm. natural to see how organisms like shelter. Right. You know, you like to have a place to hide, a place you can kind of like get, with, get under stuff and get inside stuff. Yeah. It makes you feel secure. Yeah, a shipwreck is going to have a lot of uh, little nooks and crannies that organisms could uh, – could, uh, could 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 hide in, little naturally occurring caves. Uh, I, I was fortunate enough to get to snorkel – over a shipwreck in Barbados a few years back. It was a World War I era vessel. Wow. And, uh, and so it had 
plenty of time for stuff to you know accumulate. You could still mm. s- certainly uh, it was a you know big metal vessel, so a big steel vessel. So you, you, there's still plenty of it there. It was definitely a, a shipwreck. You could identify it as a human uh, structure, but. Uh, it was it was very well populated, and it's kind of haunting to swim over it, and you stare down into these dark recesses and yeah. see things swimming in and out of it. Uh, see all of this life that is thriving just all over the surface of the thing. Do you do you constantly think uh, you see a dark recess and you think what would happen if I stuck my hand in there? Oh yeah, you think what would happen if I dove down there and got lost in it? I, you know, you you see these. Uh, documentaries in which people are diving not only down two shipwrecks but going inside them, and that mm. you know that that kind of that, oh, that gives me willies. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so anyway, here's another uh, advantage that sunken ships can provide to organisms that I I found this one interesting and surprising. Uh, Spate and Henderson do not mention this one. I found this instead in some online materials from the Ocean Exploration Trust, which is a uh, associated with Bob Ballard, the undersea explorer. Oh yes. Um, and so it's this, elevation above the seafloor. Hmm. So like by climbing up higher off the ocean floor, they say, you give yourself better access to currents, moving streams of water within the ocean. So if you are, say, an immobile or mostly immobile organism like a flytrap anemone, you want to take root in a place where food sources will drift past you so you can grab and eat things as they float on by. It's kind of like a reverse drive-through. Huh. Well, that makes sense, yeah. You're able to essentially climb up into an area of greater traffic. Like getting up in the wind. Yeah. So imagine sort of like plopping down a fresh, unoccupied combination of a reef and a cave system in the water. Obviously, things are going to want to take root. So shipwrecks can be especially attractive to marine life if they sink in a place with muddy or sandy seabed like we've been talking about since a sunken vessel will now be the only hard substrate around and hard substrates are very valuable real estate in the ocean. In another way, we've already discussed the analogy of a desert oasis, but this is another way that a shipwreck can be kind of like a desert oasis at the bottom of the sea. And then ultimately, it's going to—it's there's there's often going to be something there for quite a a while. Now, certainly with with wooden vessels, those are going to deteriorate at a far faster rate, whereas uh, steel hold ships are going to linger quite a bit longer. Mm -hmm. Uh, But uh, speaking of Bob Ballard. Uh, I was watching a documentary a while back uh, about his work and some of the uh, you know the undersea explorations that he's uh, uh, taken part in, and in one of them they were they were looking at uh, really ancient wrecks, uh, mm-hmm. uh, you know, uh, Greek sailing vessels, and uh, and by this point in time there was virtually nothing left, like all the wood was gone, uh, but you had uh, you had the remnants of the cargo. Uh, on there, there on the bottom, uh, a, a range more or less in the shape of the ship. Oh yeah, yeah. And uh, so another thing I, I do want to talk about is how you can have remains of a ship even after a lot of the wood is gone from mm-hmm. a wooden shipwreck, uh, not just from the cargo. I mean, the, the stuff about the cargo is interesting because yeah, you see like the ghost of the shape of the ship, and then inside there like the amphorae, yes. like the wine jars or you know gold or something. Yeah, or at least the shattered remnants of it. Yeah. Uh, so uh, sometimes what happens to the remains of a ship is what's known as concretion. And Robert, I have attached an image for you to look at here in our notes. Uh, this is an image I put in of a concretion from the remains of the Queen Anne's Revenge, the flagship of the pirate 
Uh, Blackbeard, how do you say his name? Is it Edward Teach? It's spelled like Teach, but I want to say it's like Teach or something. Teach. I don't um, know. I, I always said teach. Um, okay. Well, I'm, I'm teach maybe sounds it's nice just piratey. Okay. Yeah. But he's like he's going to teach you a lesson with his cutlass if you don't hand over <laughs> all the booty. So Edward Teach, the pirate known as Blackbeard, he sailed around. He robbed ships. His flagship, the Queen Anne's Revenge, was sunk. I think it was sunk off the coast of North Carolina. Um, but so it. Uh, I was reading a blog post by a North Carolina archaeologist named Court- Courtney Page, uh, who worked on the Queen Anne's Revenge project, and uh, and she was writing about how this process happens. You know, when people study sunken ships that contain iron elements, this often leads to the creation of what are called concretions, and these are interesting structures, as the name implies. They sort of resemble concrete. Uh, I, I was looking at this image of of the one from the Queen Anne's Revenge, and it looks to me like a cement cow heart. Uh, yeah, or a deep-fried chicken cutlet is kind of what I was getting from. <laughs> it looks like it could go on a biscuit. Uh-huh. It looks like it could go on a, a sandwich. That'd be a real tooth-cracking sandwich, but <laughs> yes. Uh, so, so concretions are formed out of a combination of products and processes. One is the corrosion of iron in seawater. Iron is corroded by the water and that produces byproducts. Uh, but the concretion also incorporates, uh, according to Page, sand, biological byproducts created by marine life forms. So anywhere there's iron in a wreck, concretions can form and spread around in nearby structures, even structures that are not made of iron. So you can have iron elements that are things like cooking pots or cannonballs or nails, studs, tools. And this leads to the fact that sometimes even in waters where organic materials like cloth and rope and wood would normally disintegrate over time, they can be preserved by their proximity to an iron object, which means they get encrusted with concretions and partially preserved. Oh, wow. Almost uh, like a fossilization, really. Yeah, kind of. And some objects, uh, like she gives the example of wrought iron objects, they often disappear and dissolve entirely in the water, leaving only their concretion byproducts behind. So you, like, can't see the original thing, but you might be able to try to determine what it was by looking at this cement cow heart that formed around it. Hmm. Another interesting bit of uh, shipwreck iron chemistry I want to look at is the rustical. Robert, have you ever seen these before? Uh, yes, you included a picture, and this is this is something you see on a number of these documentaries where you're exploring a shipwreck. Yeah, like uh, I think you see it on the Titanic, actually. Yes. And a rustical is pretty simple. It's like an icicle made of rust. It happens when iron oxidizes in some deep sea wrecks, creating hanging formations of rusty material, which are sometimes inhabited by special species of bacteria. Uh, back to uh, rustical loving bacteria. And one more thing I got to mention. This is this doesn't really have anything to do with uh, biology, but one of my favorite bits of shipwreck science trivia is that lead ingots from an ancient Roman shipwreck have been used in the 21st century to build a neutrino detector. Oh wow, that's awesome! Uh, I think it's supposedly because that because they were so old and and sunken, the recovered lead ingots had much lower than average level levels of natural radioactivity or. Uh, Something like that. Huh, interesting. Yeah, you don't think about the about modern uh, scientists creating something and saying, all right, it's ready to go, but we, we there's one missing component, and the only place we can get it is a sunken Roman vessel. It sounds like, a, like the setup of a really contrived deep-sea adventure movie. Yeah. The Deep 2, Finding Neutrino. <laughs> 
All right. Well, on that note, we're going to take one more break. And when we come back, we're going to talk about some of the, the more notable organisms that make their home in the shipwreck. All right. We're back. Okay, so we've been talking about what happens when a ship sinks, its impact on marine biodiversity, uh, and what happens to the ship itself, the materials it's made out of. But let's talk about some shipwreck life. What, so uh, a shipwreck sinks. We've mentioned a few organisms that sometimes move in and set up shop. But let's talk about some more. Well, for starters, there are the the shipworms that we talked a little bit about in the previous episode. Shipworms. Yeah, these are uh, uh, Teredo navalis. And alongside barnacles, they were uh, they were you know once the scour- the scourge of uh, wooden sailing vessels, certainly a, a functional sailing vessels. Uh, so it makes sense that they would feast on the remains of wooden vessels as well. Okay. So what they do is uh, they drill into the wood, not to eat the wood, but for shelter. Yeah, any wooden structure is just going to be uh, you know irresistible because they can just make a home in it. I got a new blister in barnacles. The, okay, the new expression should be shiver and shipworms. Blister in barnacles was a, was a saying? Yeah, that's from Tintin. Didn't oh. It? Huh. That's well, what the, the old sea captain in Tintin, he says, blister in barnacles. <laughs> What's another cartoon sea captain that can yell shiver and shipworms? Shiver and ship. I like shiver and shipworms uh, more. Yeah, I, I like it. All right, well, what if we uh, just glance at a few studies that uh, look into what kind of organisms set up shop at shipwrecks and, uh, and, and see what they have to say? Sure, yeah. The, uh, there, there was one study we looked at by uh, Zinson et al., uh, and this was published in Marine Biodiversity back in 2006, titled uh, Epiphonal Inventory of Two Shipwrecks from the Belgian Continental Shelf. So uh, in this study, they identified 121 uh, uh, macrofauna species, and they, they estimated the number of species probably involved anywhere between 150 and 280. So there were a lot of cnidarians, right? Right. Uh, so the the cnidarians would be a large phylum of animals that includes jellyfish, coral, and sea anemones. Yeah, clearly the type of organisms you might expect to find uh, in a uh, you know, a, a coral environment or certainly a shipwreck environment. Mm-hmm. They also point out that the two-dwelling amphipod Jasa herdmani was also particularly abundant. But there's still a fair amount of variety between shipwrecks here just in this particular study that they couldn't completely explain. Hmm. So every shipwreck's different. Yeah, yeah. I, I mean, it kind of comes back to that idea, uh, that hypothesis that uh, we mentioned earlier about them being, uh, you know, s- s- stepping stones between habitats and so mm-hmm. forth. Uh, so it, depending on where a ship falls, uh, you know, there are going to be different things perhaps in position to take advantage of it. And then, of course, it's going to depend on the nature of the wreck too. Right. So the inherent conditions like how deep is it, temperature of the water, you know, salinity and all that kind of mm-hmm. normal stuff. But then also just what's nearby and has access to set up shop, like who can move in first. Right. Because like there are there are going to be some uh, some first responders, right? And you, uh, the, the crab legions are probably going to be a little slower in getting there as opposed to certainly, uh, you know, the, the faster moving sharks. Now, I'd wonder, like, are, are there qualities of certain boats or ships that make them more amenable to hosting lots of marine biodiversity than other ones? Well, this was uh, a question that was uh, looked at in a 2007 marine ecology paper. Uh, This came from uh, Walker et al. titled Spatial uh, Heterogeneity 
of epibenthos on artificial reefs, fouling communities in the early stages of colonization on an East Australian shipwreck. We got that fouling again. Yep. So much fouling in the ocean. (laughs) And uh, they, they point out that complexity of structure is key, enabling a complexity of colonization. Oh, okay. So if you've got like a a lot of like uh, little twists and turns and different kinds of structures on your shipwreck, that maybe will mean that more different types of organisms move in and that's good for, you know, a healthy ecosystem. Yeah, lots of nooks and crannies, you know. Think of it if if it's a speedboat, like all, you know, streamlined, it doesn't have eight toilets on it. How attractive (laughs) is that going to be versus a toilet barge? There's just nothing but toilets. There's just going to be so much more room to hide in that. Uh, This is a quote from this particular paper. Quote, this study supports the notion that wrecks enhance local diversity and biomass within the habitat mosaic of their location, and habitat complexity may be an important mechanism for this as demonstrated by the large spatial variability in the assemblages documented here. So get those smooth boats out of here. Yeah. I mean, I guess for the most part, though, vessels are not going to be that streamlined. Like, they're going to have a lot of nooks and crannies. They're going to have a number of compartments, right? Certainly the larger vessels. Now, on the other hand, uh, we, we've mentioned already that there, you know, a shipwreck is not always a, a net positive for uh, undersea biodiversity, that it can be very negative and not just the initial impact. Like uh, one example that uh, I was reading about as summarized in that book by Spate and Henderson earlier was uh, about a fishing vessel that sank in 1991 on a, uh, on a coral reef in the Central Pacific Ocean. This was around the Palmyra Atoll. And this was uh, described in a study by Work et al. in 2008. And they showed that by the year 2005, after this thing went down, so this is what, like 14 years later, there had been a phase shift in the ecosystem. So you had a naturally pretty diverse coral ecosystem that had been taken over by this aggressive organism called Rhodactus rhodostoma. And basically, the authors come to the conclusion that, you know, when the ship came down, it it dis- obviously caused a physical disturbance when it sank on the reef. But then there were also changes in what kind of nutrients were available in the water and in pollutants that the boat was leaching out into the water. And this favored this new aggressive invasive species taking over the natural diverse coral habitat. And in light of the study, Spade and Henderson say, you know, maybe we shouldn't be so quick to think, yeah, sinking a ship, that's great for for the undersea life. Yeah, because basically if you're sinking it into uh, an existing ecosystem, you could destabilize that ecosystem. Yeah, and so this is yet another case where it seems like People may have been too quick to rush to judgment on the idea that forming an artificial reef is always just great. Mm-hmm. Uh, that, like maybe we should hesitate to mess with undersea or not just undersea. Maybe we should hesitate to mess with ecosystems at all if we can help it. Now, coming back to my own experiences um, snorkeling around a shipwreck, certainly one of the things that I was looking for, something that I'm just generally looking for if I'm just walking around in, in the surf anywhere. Morphine. Well, morph- yeah, I want to find the morphine. I want to find that Spanish gold. But I also want to see an octopus. Oh, uh, Because yeah. that is a creature that can appreciate nooks and crannies. I mean, the octopus is kind of like you would expect some kind of named kraken at the bottom of the ocean to be guarding the gold in the shipwreck, much like Smaug the dragon guards his mm-hmm. pile of gold in the Lonely Mountain. Right. <laughs> 
I mean, they are kind of like dragons of the sea, and they like their their layers. They like their middens. Absolutely. So I I was uh, reading a section from a book about octopuses and shit. Well, the book isn't about oct- octopuses and shipwrecks. The book's just about the octopus. Uh, it's called Octopus: The Ocean's Intelligent Invertebrate uh, from 2013 by Anderson, Mather, and Wood. Uh, timber press. And the authors here are writing about how octopuses often do inhabit shipwrecks. They say octopuses can be shy and they tend to seek out shelter and enclosures in whatever forms they can find. And this often means in objects and structures made by human hands. So octopuses can sometimes be found living or at least hiding in everything from beer bottles to ancient wine jars, those amphorae we were talking about in the wrecks of Roman galleons. Uh, and there's even research showing that they like aged beer bottles better when they're covered in barnacles and other growths more than they like fresh beer bottles, presumably because the older beer bottles that get covered in stuff let less light through and it feels more like a solid rocky shelter. Oh, yeah, of course. And then also, I mean, a number of uh, you know the, the octopuses have uh, the ability to, to mimic um, – uh, the the the, uh, the the surface like naturally occurring surfaces yes but probably not glass bottles yeah and I think I should say it's a coincidence that these containers I mentioned uh, held alcohol uh, octopuses apparently sometimes also chill out in crab and lobster traps and stuff which is great because that's shelter and it's a buffet. <laughs> Uh, But there's a section of the book where uh, one of the authors, Roland Anderson, is writing about his own experiences with octopuses and shipwrecks. So Anderson is writing about how, you know, he explores uh, uh, shipwrecks like off the, uh, uh, the Puget Sound area. And these shipwrecks often contain giant Pacific octopuses, which can be huge. These are like some of the biggest octopuses. They, they, live, uh, they live to become as big as 400 pounds sometimes or 180 kilograms. And uh, I, I want to read a quote here. He tells a particular story, quote, Once while diving on the wreck of the clipper ship Warhawk in Discovery Bay off Puget Sound, I saw the greatest number of giant Pacific octopuses I'd ever seen on one dive. This full-rigged sailing ship caught fire and went down in 1883, and all that remained were the skeletal ribs of the ship's starboard side protruding from the sand bottom and a hundred-foot-long or thirty-meter-long pile of ballast rocks next to the ribs." Eight giant Pacific octopuses were living in the ballast pile, perhaps because there was little else to make a den out of nearby in the bay, only vast expanses of sand and mud. These octopuses made dens where they could, even though they were closer to each other than they would have liked. Instead of just a home, this was an octopus condominium. Huh. Interesting. Uh, but but also interesting, you know, he points out that it's, it, it's forcing these uh, creatures to live in closer proximity to one another. Yeah, so even then, like, it's providing them with something that they like, which is the shelter, Mm -hmm. but it's also maybe messing with what they would be naturally doing. Right. And shipwrecks can be such desirable habitats that octopuses will sometimes fight over them. Uh, Robert, did you ever see the video of the two octopuses fighting over who got to stay in the shipwreck from last year? It was in 2018. No, I missed this. So, okay, on April 13th, 2018, uh, some NOAA scientists were observing a seafloor scene in the Gulf of Mexico, about 6,000 feet or about 1,800 meters deep. And there was an octopus of the species uh, Musoctopus johnsonianus, uh, which tried to enter a seafloor shipwreck, presumably to make a den. But the cavity of the shipwreck was already occupied by another octopus of the same species. 
The two octopuses start fighting, but the intruder seems to be on the losing end, and then it seems to grab hold of part of the wreckage, and it looks like it's trying to pull at it as if to rip it off. I'm not sure that's exactly what hap- what's happening. That's just what it looks like. <laughs> and you can hear one of the scientists who's watching on the intercom saying, guys, if you could have your creature stop tearing apart the shipwreck, that would be great. <laughs> but what happens after the fight is the most interesting. The defeated octopus who did not get to make a din in the shipwreck retreats and then settles down in the mud and then starts writhing and wriggling all of its arms at once and churning up a cloud of sediment. And I'm like, what's going on here? Like, is it trying to bury itself and hide? Or is this an expression of anger and frustration, like when somebody punches a wall? (laughs) It's one of those many times you look at octopus behavior and you see some kind of maybe a little bit unsettling type of uh, display of intelligence or something emotional or social that you're not expecting to see out of such an alien creature. Yeah, a degree of, of complexity there for sure. Uh, but shipwrecks, of course, probably make great sites for an octopus for multiple reasons. The the octopus loves shelter uh, to make itself an enclosed den. The wreck also functions as a food oasis, attracting prey organisms for the octopus to eat, especially in areas of otherwise like fairly boring, unoccupied, sandy, or muddy seafloor. Uh, if you haven't seen this video of the octopuses fighting over the shipwreck, it's worth a look. You can, you can Google it. It's pretty easy to find. All right, so I feel like these examples do illuminate the you know the, the benefits uh, as well as the disadvantages of of shipwrecks, uh, how they can offer uh, a number of organisms new territory, uh, new uh, new layers, and also uh, eventually a, a a new mini ecosystem in which to thrive. But also all the downsides that can come with that. I mean, I'm reminded again of the dim moon-eyed fish that says, what does all this vaingloriousness down here? Yeah. Apparently what it does is attract uh, uh, chemosynthetic food webs and tube worms and uh, leech oil. <laughs> now, certainly we could, we, we could easily do an entire episode on, on, on oil spills uh, uh, oh, yeah. alone, uh, not only to, uh, to marine environments but coast, coastal environments as well. Oh, yeah. I was reading a, a Scientific American uh, article about how the Deepwater Horizon oil spill may mm-hmm. have altered some of these shipwreck ecosystems in the surrounding area because like oil spills could speed the corrosion of shipwrecks. Interesting. And, and of course affect the wildlife directly. Right. And then if there's anything within those shipwrecks uh, that could leach out due to that corrosion, it's kind yeah. of a domino effect it would seem. Right. So I'd say we touched on several things today that we could return to, much like a, a shipwreck from which we have not recovered yet all of the sunken Spanish gold. Yeah, or the uh, the odd uh, atomic weapon here and there, that sort of thing. It would be interesting if you had like a, 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 like a God's eye view of everything and you could, you could essentially look at a list of all the things that have been lost and remain lost on the, the bottom of the ocean. What would that, uh, that list consist of? I think this is where some true nerd out there would make a joke about the second season of Firefly or something. Yeah. <laughs> oh, yes, because because they actually filmed it and then uh, and put some, it all on DVD. Down in Davy Jones' locker. <laughs> Davy Jones' locker. <laughs> where, where an octopus just uh, lords over it next to its, uh, its stash of morphine and gold <laughs> coins. Well, Robert, this has been fun. Yeah, uh, this, this, this has been fun. Uh, I feel like the, the shipwreck territory on one hand – maybe seemed like it was going to be like a little more straightforward. But I do feel like we discussed some dimensions to the disruption of shipwrecks 
that maybe hadn't been as obvious uh, to a number of listeners. Now, certainly, we know that we we, we have some divers out there who listen to the show. Uh, we would, of course, love to hear from anyone who has experience uh, diving down to shipwrecks and observing the kind of uh, uh, ecosystems that uh, that thrive in, in, at these locations. Uh, we'd also love to hear from just anybody with, with nautical experience and experience dealing with barnacles and shipworms and what have you. So that's it for this episode. In the meantime, if you want to check out other episodes of Stuff to Blow Your Mind, head on over to stufftoblowyourmind.com. That's where you'll find all the episodes. Uh, you can also click on the merchandise store at the top of that page, and you can buy some stickers, some shirts. Uh, this is a great way to support the show. And if you want to support the show without spending any money at all, you can simply rate and review us wherever you have the power to do so. We'd like to encourage you, again, to look up and, and subscribe to our new show, Invention. Uh, that's another great way to help us out. And you get a whole other show in the bargain. Uh, it publishes every Monday. Each episode is a, is a look at a particular invention, how it changed the world, and, and how that change came about. Huge thanks, as always, to our wonderful audio producers, Alex Williams and Tari Harrison. If you would like to get in touch with us directly with feedback on this episode or any other, to suggest a topic for the future, or just to say hello, you can email us at blowthemind at howstuffworks.com. For more on this and thousands of other topics, visit HowStuffWorks.com.